Create Out Loud is brought to you by Anchor.fm. And if you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast so you can, yes, create out loud. It's free. They give you tools so you can record easily on your phone or your computer. They'll distribute the podcast for you. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm and get started. Because yeah, I want you to create out loud. Hey everyone, welcome back to Create Out Loud with me, Jen Loudon. On this show, we invite the world's most interesting, dynamic, and groundbreaking creatives to get vulnerable about their creative journey and to share what they've learned along the way so you too can have a deep, fulfilling, creative life. This week, we're talking to Catherine Bob McGurr, and she is the author of Poe for Your Problems, Uncommon Advice from History's Least Likely Self-Help Guru. She's also the author of a Substack newsletter that talks about that explores really honestly her publishing journey, platform, and how she learned to think about the marketplace and lots of things that we're going to dive into right now. It's a great interview. I can't wait to share it with you. Here's Catherine. Catherine, reading the book, I I had a lot of different reactions. I I guess my first question is, were you afraid anyone would take everything you said seriously? Yes, very (laughs) much so. (laughs) My husband read the book and he was like, I'm afraid you really think some of these things, (laughs) but it is written firmly tongue in cheek. Honestly, I do have a dark sense of humor. So if someone's going to go there, it's usually me. Love your sense of humor. You're a wonderful writer. And I I thought this sentence, Poe never lies to you about how painful life can be. It cheered me up. Yeah, it's true. For me, I think being in the self-help world for 30 years, that's always been the thing that's been maybe the hardest for me, maybe not. It's also all the hucksters and and people selling stuff that is total bullshit. But it's also this idea that there isn't room for the dark side. There isn't room for the truth. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things I really appreciated about the book. And I really appreciate about the way you've been writing about getting published, the whole process on your Substack. Mm I don't want to linger too much over those parts of life, but I also think that if you're going to, like I wanted to, offer real comfort, you have to show the full scope of reality or at least try to. Mm -hmm. What people are up against is very real. And that's where you came from when you started the book. Yeah, for sure. In a very dark place when I got this idea as, I don't know, maybe it comes across but yeah, it's one of the worst phases of my life by a lot. Given that, what was it like to do such a deep dive into not a healthy mind? I will say that when I first started to get into Poe and I really started to dig through the biographies and there are so many of those, I was in a dark place myself. And so in a way I felt very comforted and like I had found a fellow traveler. And like you said, like somebody who is not going to lie to me about how bad things can be. But I also think that's exactly why the story is so perversely hopeful because of how dark it is at the same time. And yet all that Poe accomplished, getting his work done in spite of near endless tragedy. For me, at a moment of you know such profound depression, to hear something like that was both a very grounded message and an extremely hopeful one at the same time. I, I can't imagine something that was actually more helpful than that. It's not that I dislike the you are the you are badasses of the world. I've read those books too, but at least for my mental landscape, it doesn't nearly get dark enough to show you, you know, a way forward. At what point in finding Poe and starting to read him and think about it, did the book really take on a shape and find its point? Like how long did that take? It was a couple of months. 
I started, so it was late 2016 when I found myself in this very terrible depression and I started reading him. It was the only thing I could concentrate on at all. Over a period of those weeks that became months, I read Poe's catalog, which is humongous. And then I started reading the biographies and his letters. And one night I was out just meeting a friend for a drink and I started telling him he's a historian. I was like, oh, the weirdest thing is happening. Edgar Allan Poe is cheering me up. And he said, that sounds like a book. And at first I thought that's the funniest thing ever. Yeah, I'm going to write it and we'll call it how to say never more to your problems. <laughs> and totally a joke that I jotted down on a napkin. And then I stayed with the idea and it became less of a joke to me. And then I wrote an essay for the millions, a literary website. This was, it was published in September of 2017. And it was about the whole idea. I didn't mention that I had an idea to maybe make this all into a book, but the essay itself, which was about 2,500 words long, it did so well for anything literary, it went viral by those standards. And I started to get attention from agents even before they knew that there was a book proposal here. So it was early 2018 when I actually signed with an agent and started, you know, shopping the proposal and that sort of thing. One of the things that I'm always curious about in the evolution of an idea is, did at any point you feel like, shoot, I've backed into this and I'm not sure I want to do it? I will say that I sometimes, and not to sound totally woo, but I am a little woo on the point mm-hmm. that the process teaches you how to write the book. Yeah, definitely. I mean, in its original iteration, you know, from my original book proposal in early 2018, the book was a very dark memoir of depression and very literary in its pitch. Mm-hmm. The agent I had at the time wanted to sell it to the fair strauss mm-hmm. of the world. And we went to all those folks and they all rejected it. A lot of like platform issues and that sort of thing. People saw the potential, but they're like, I'm not really sure how this is going to work or where it's going to be in a bookstore. And initially I was really depressed by that. All those rejections hit me very hard. But over time I thought, you know what? I should really make this more of a mass market title, like more like Poe's work, where a total cross-section of life enjoys his work. It's not just scholars. It's not just folks in academia or the highbrow folks. It's literally everyone. He has an NFL team named for one of his poems. That's how <laughs> the mainstream it is. <laughs> And it's something that I admire so intensely about his career and his overall. Over time, I started to make this into a more mass market title, taking it in a lighter direction and less personal direction. And now I am so insanely thankful for that happening like that. Because A, now doing interviews about the book, I realized that it's very hard to linger over this dark period of my life. I'm glad it's not really in the book. It's the background story in my own mind, but it's not really, as you've seen, figuring in the book that strongly. It's not really a book about me. It's about no, it's not. readers of Poe. I feel so much more comfortable with that direction. And I feel like the book has more to offer the world because it's less personal. If that didn't happen that way, I don't know that I ever would have gotten there. I, there is a way that we can hold too tightly to our preciousness. We're going to keep coming back to this idea of how did this book evolve? And I really want you to pay attention to because I'm trying to piece together how many different ways that we can find the point and the containment and the voice of a project and how important it is to be willing to do that work. One of the things that I find happens a lot in my Right Now program and in my Mastermind, both writing programs that you can sign up for interest lists, they will be enrolling for January and February of the new year, is that people don't want to spend that time 
really figuring out who is the audience for this project? What's the point? What's really, really going in this? They get in love with their ideas, but even more than that, and I have certainly done this too, is we just want to be writing because we think writing is the thing we're supposed to be doing no matter what. But all of that wrestling and all of that choosing and all of that focusing in, even though it can be maddening. I have one student this semester who in the mastermind has really resisted it, but then she's broken through and she's really getting so much closer to writing something that's going to be um, really powerful. So it counts as writing, <laughs> I guess is my way of saying this. So, so listen in and, and really pay attention to how Catherine went through all these different evolutions of the project, Poe, for your problems. Mm -hmm. And you I definitely think that's the thing that has surprised me most about that process is how smart and informative market reactions have been for the book, because often artists think, oh, if I don't adhere only to my own vision, if I'm only true to myself, then that's how the great, that's how you make great work. And I'm not at all sure that's true. I'm not making a big claim about this being like the greatest book of all time. But I do think that the information that I got both from editors, from agents, from the market itself has been really good for me. Did you find like the middle ground for you with this book that where you still were really like I'm on board with this and I believe it and I'm interested in it, but I'm also writing it knowing that it's this tongue-in-cheek look at how Poe can help you with your life. So the book sold at auction and I spoke to a couple of editors who mm -hmm. were bidding and I had this funny experience in the weeks before auction or it was really about the week before auction where one editor, very nice big name imprint was like, I want you to make this thing tragic. So rewrite your 4,000 word writing sample and show me that this is a tragic book. And then my editor at Georgiana at Running Press said, you know what? I really think this is a funny book and I want you to rewrite this same writing sample. Obviously, neither of them know they're both saying these things to me. Right. She says, I want you to write this as a pure joke. So in a week, I had to turn around with the tragic example and then the comic example of this. Or these people might not bid on my book and it might never get published. And my hair was absolutely on fire for a week. But it was also a kind of process by which I could tell what I feel like is A, the direction I want to spend the most time with and B, the direction that's probably going to have the biggest appeal to the widest audience. Mm -hmm. And it was the humorous one, which was so much more fun to work on than the tragic one. And I think that's an underrated aspect of what we do. Like, is it fun to work on or not? Because if, if it's a grind, like, holy crap, that doesn't really go away, at least in my experience. And it's really draining over time. I think related to this, tell me what you think of this. We get this sort of tragic, let's use that word, tragic idea of what it means to be a writer and that we have to suffer and it has to always be hard. And I feel like I, I really want to reject that and help other people reject that, that it can be fun and it can be commercial and it can be delightful. I mean, I think sometimes the creative brief you get is tough. When I was getting both these kind of assignments from editors, each of them was tough in its own way because it's tough to play a sad story for jokes. It's tough to spend so much time with just a sad story in just that one sad register. But also when you get the tough creative brief, like you can tell whether there's going to be room in this assignment for you to enjoy it or mm -hmm. not. The project's always giving you information. That's how I feel. The project is teaching me how to write it. And with the comic vein, obviously that's just, maybe it's obvious that that's just going to be more fun. Like that we are going to like punchiness to this thing and kind of roll through it in a more lighthearted vein than it's been treated in, in the past. So it also sounds like to go back to the question a little bit ago, the finding the 
point in the shape of the project. It took a lot of iterations. Like that was the final iteration when you were in auction or about to go into auction was, is the, oh, this is going to be a funny book. Yeah, it's wild that it had so many. I rewrote the proposal top to bottom three different times. <laughs> and as you probably know, it was it's 10,000 words long. And you put your heart and soul into that. It was my first nonfiction book proposal. And even as from the very beginning, I was having to learn how to write one as I was writing one. And you're flying the plane and building it at the same. I'm very thankful for how that worked out. I feel like it worked out like it should have. And it's given me a whole career direction that I didn't know was there. Mm-hmm. Maybe you can write very sad literary biographies that are played for laughs. <laughs> a new genre. Yeah. Catherine has invented a new genre. I just did not to drive this home too many times, but one of the things I see both in myself and writers I work with is this sometimes inability, but resistance to doing that work to find the point, to find the shape, to find the voice. Like it should just spring forth. And sometimes it does, but a mm-hmm. lot of times it doesn't. And I think you're being open to that and playing with it over so many years is a really interesting observation for all of us. We're often, at least this was my training and my undergrad and my grad, but you're supposed to keep the market outside your creative process. You're supposed to not pay attention to audience. You're only supposed to pay attention to yourself and your inner voice, which strikes me now is utterly crazy because you are creating for an audience. So it's good to get feedback instead of the product project being this utterly insulating yourself sort of thing. I think the more that we open up to feedback from the marketplace, from your readers, the, the better off we are. I agree. And oftentimes in the beginning, that's hard. I'm mm-hmm. not saying it's always easy. A lot of this was like the product of being in the school of hard knocks and being a freelancer for a very long time where you just, you've gone through this process with editors on a mini basis so many times that it's less scary when it starts happening with a book. So if yeah. you're not there right now to the listener, I understand that. It's not where people tend to start. So you mentioned the P word, platform. (laughs) And one of the things that I really both find extraordinarily irritating and maddening is how people talk and approach platform and how scared they get of it and how publishers misuse it. (laughs) You've been writing and talking now about platform because you did a very wise thing. Part of your calculation as this book developed for you was to use Pose platform. Can you just talk about Mm -hmm. that a little bit? Yeah. I think a lot of people who are writers who are trying to write books when that's whether it's fiction or nonfiction, they're getting feedback of your platform isn't large enough. You don't have enough Twitter followers or Instagram followers or what have you. You don't have big enough bylines if you're a freelancer. And that's real. In fact, now that I'm promoting a book, I really understand why publishers care so much about those things. But my hack evolving over time for this was I'm actually quite an introverted person. I don't really want to have a million Twitter followers. It's not really my jam. I don't love social media, but I do want to write books. So over time, I figured out that if I take a famous subject, Poe is humongous. He has 4 million Facebook fans, speaking of platform. (laughs) He has houses and museums in four different American cities. There are Poe festivals all over the world and inside the US. So his platform is humongous. And when I was writing my proposal, I concentrated on those things. And I literally said to publishers, it's not about me, it's about Poe. And you can see the demand for his work and the demand for Poe products. There are Poe socks and Poe mugs and Poe office decor. So he's not an unmerchandised guy. 
and this has been wonderful for me in that it means I don't have to have that like uber public life that say an Instagram personality has to have in order to sell cookbooks or what have you. So I think if you write about a famous subject, you can get around the platform issue a little bit. It doesn't mean that you could have no public role at all. You have to, it's just the territory. Is that mm-hmm. something you found too? I was lucky to start before any of this was an issue. The word didn't even exist three years ago. And then to evolve with it very early on, Harper had a, I think it was probably like 1999. They had a, uh, they all invited all their authors to come in and they taught us about growing an email list. Yes. I just remember thinking this is really important. So I was lucky to do stuff, but then it evolves and you can't necessarily keep up or you don't evolve Mm -hmm. with it. So there's definitely some mistakes that I made. I just had to interrupt myself for a moment right now to say, hey, last call for right now until the fall. Right Now is a program that can change your relationship with writing and help you get a lot more writing done with a lot more joy and self-compassion and ownership of your voice and what you have to say. I love what one of my students said after the program. What has shifted for me is I get excited about and look forward to my writing times rather than seeing and feeling them as something on my to-do list. I feel energized when I write. I'm excited that I've almost finished my first draft, which is what I hoped for when I committed to the course at the beginning. And I also loved what another student said, Colleen, this course has been fabulous. I have loved it and I find it so well organized, the reminder frequency just right. The non-mandatory homework has also made me feel I wasn't drinking from a fire hose and chronically behind. I'm so grateful for your coaching and that you participate so frequently in the small group forums. This is one of the best courses I've taken. If any of that sounds intriguing to you, if you feel like you really are called to write in a whole new way and show up for yourself, then doors are closing soon. Pop over to jenniferloudon.com forward slash write dash now. Hope to see you there. One of the things you're starting to do on podcasts is talk to other writers and people who lead writing communities about what are some of the ways to leverage or build a platform? What are some of the things that you're seeing come out of your mouth as you're learning this, mm-hmm. given your experience that's unfolding in real time? Having had some time to reflect on this, I think one of the reasons I even ever heard this was a book idea was because I was talking to a friend who is a historian who's written biographies of Jefferson and so on. So it just happened to be that the audience, like when I bounced this idea that I didn't even know I was bouncing, that person has already made a career of writing about literary community often and this is in self-help too. We often like a lot of people's projects are exclusively about themselves in their own lives. And I understand that in a way it saves you a lot of time on research because you have all that material ready to hand. And if you're a person with a day job or kids or whatever, that's a, an amazing hack to be writing about yourself. But also that is when you're in a narrow niche of you have to have the platform because it's very hard to sell a memoir or anything like that otherwise. As I learned myself in my own process, like I had 10 years of freelance experience and I couldn't sell a book that was pretty personal. So when I opened it up and I started writing that I made the focus of the book is all Edgar Allan Poe. I was able to start to put numbers to everything. Like in my proposal, I say he has 4 million Facebook fans, but that's just the headline on that thing because there are all these sub fan groups that are private groups. And here's one with 40,000 people. Here's one with 19,000 people. And I can do like when the book comes out, I'm going to do Facebook live in those channels. 
This idea that Catherine hit upon of leveraging a topic, I've never really thought about it this way, but it is brilliant if it appeals to you to think about looking out in the world and seeing what could I do a deep dive into? What could spark my curiosity and whatever your medium is? Is that a really different way of thinking about it for you? Or maybe it's always how you approach it and you want to flip that around and do something that comes from deep within or feels deeply personal. I think the thing I'm taking away from this is keep looking for other ways to frame the work, to freshen things and to keep learning and maybe to keep growing an audience. Mm-hmm. And I've been spending years as well in, in those groups. And so I know the people and whatnot. That I'm just going to stop you there. That's really important because I think that's one thing that people don't realize. They might do that research, but realize you need to already be a community member. You can't, mm-hmm. in a lot of cases, just show up. Sometimes you can and say, hey, will you do a Facebook Live with me? But having been there and commented and been part of it and using it for your research is a huge advantage. I think that's so true. You don't want to just parachute in. It's an old saw, but it's true that this business is about relationships and about connections and networks. And I mean, also you'll enjoy it more too. You don't want to have a strictly transactional relationship with folks. It's better to, especially now we're all so alone with the pandemic. Like it's better to have online friends than not. Anyway, though, in my proposal, I was able to start putting numbers to those things. And that's where you start to convince people with data. It becomes less subjective. And with publishing, you're often, when people get rejected, they're often told, like, oh, this is a subjective business. Don't take this personally. And for writers trying to sell work, I think the more you're able to make an objective case for why this is going to find an audience and why you're going to have sales, the better off you're going to be. I will also say, too, that at least for me, I found so much freedom in concentrating on a topic. Usually, and this is my, my experience getting an MA in creative writing and so on, there's all this focus on finding your voice. It can feel masturbatory, to be totally frank. Whereas with a topic, like you drill down and down and there's just an endless entertaining rabbit hole to the thing, which I enjoyed so much more than, say, writing a personal essay, which I've done too. But yeah, you wrote about that on your Substack, the difference between finding your angle versus finding your voice, something I, may, I might not have gotten that. Right. It was on a, it was for Jane's site. Oh, it was for Jane Friedman's site. I, I mean, honestly, I'm annoyed by that voice, that voice advice. Now, I think that it's very limiting to focus exclusively on yourself. If you're able to look out to the world and spot fan communities that you're going to be able to address with your work, all of a sudden you've got an audience and it's not this inert thing that's just to do with yourself. I'm not saying obviously personal writing has a huge role to play and I'm not downing it. I did it for years. You also I mean, have a very I, distinctive voice in the book. I do think voice is important. I love like like Mary Roach and mm-hmm. other voices I can think of that I, I will read. And Samantha Irby, I will read anything she writes. I would read her grocery list because <laughs> she's so funny and an enlivening person to just spend time with. So it's not that voice does it. When you really want to take something out into the world and you don't have a massive platform, that's when it can be so useful to have this whole topic of interest attached to your project. I also think the point that you made in the Jane Friedman piece, and this feels like a theme of our conversation, you had a lot of different experience with a lot of different kinds of writing. You were in a dark place. By working that and being open and curious, you found a different way to write, which doesn't mean that won't change and you won't write different things in the future. I think the openness and the curiosity is what really struck me about your story and made me want to talk to you. I think we do make it too precious sometimes. Yeah, I definitely have. I mean, this process that I went through with this book was a, having the preciousness beaten out of me over time <laughs> through the sheer number and volume of rejection. 
<laughs> so that's how I got to this place. I didn't start there, but I, I'm very thankful. I know that sounds silly and, and not true, but it absolutely is where I landed with this place. It got me to a register where I could really start to explore some things that were interesting to me. I do think we still have this idea in our culture that creativity comes from the muses. I think in the vein of what you're saying, that creativity is cumulative. It's mm-hmm. the creation of experiences over time. And that's how you get some of the information that ends up ultimately shaping your work, which is also to me a very hopeful message because I think of all the bad jobs I've had, the years of tempting, the years of being utterly broke, the years of reading, going through a tough time and reading like 30 self-help books at once. All that ended up being useful. <laughs> so Nothing is ever lost. They're good nice for it. The very, you know, the school hard knocks aspect. Yeah. You wrote a post also on Substack everything you've made, everything you spent on the book and made on the book. Why did you think that was important to share? I love that you did, but it's pretty brave. I feel like there's a huge financial aspect of this business that is opaque to people who aren't already in it. And that you can get the wrong idea that writing books is going to make you a lot of money, which is a very rare, rare thing for anyone to have happen. The case is if you're lucky enough to eventually get published, you're not likely to make very much money from the book itself. So I've been very open about this. I made $20,000 for my advance and I was lucky to get it. I'm not uh, complaining, but I also, none of this would be possible if I didn't have a day job. I work in marketing full-time. I do my freelance journalism on the side. I couldn't be a journalist full-time. It just simply does not pay. So I don't want people to have the wrong impression that writing the, a book is going to change their life in a financial sense. Lord, that could be a bad road. I've seen people People go down yeah. that. I started to go down that myself in my 20s before I was just absolutely forced to get a job. I had a friend who went $900,000 in debt. No. When I first got out of college and graduate school, I had this idea of like, oh, I'll get a book deal within a few years. Between book sales and my freelance work, which as any freelancer knows, you're making like $300 for an 1100 word article that you may work on for two weeks with edits and such. And then you don't get paid maybe for six weeks after that. It's not a living unless you're doing it a different way than I do. So anyway, I had those ideas in the beginning and up until the time I was about 26, like I was trying to make that work and it did not work. I had $22,000 in student debt. My husband had 5,000 in student debt. So between us, we were like 30 grand in the hole. And it just became clear in our lives. Oh, we better start trying to climb some corporate ladder here, or we are going to uh, be in this hole forever. We had no health insurance. We had $300 in cash and that was our picture. So we just decided to change it. And three years, a solid 10 years after that, I felt, oh, I missed the boat. Now publishing is never going to happen. I was doing it on the side, but it's still not my full-time job. And I I kept thinking that this means it's not going to happen for me, but I also, I just refused to give up on it too. Why? And eventually it did work out. Obsession. I've wanted this since I was a little kid. It's, I think the whole like getting published by in the traditional sense, mm-hmm. it's you want to, you want to play in the pros. As silly as that may sound, there's a kind of validation that you want from the world and you want to be like, Hey, it's now at this level for folks who want that too. I really do understand it. It's something that I wanted for years on end. It didn't change my financial life, nor should it have to. It's just something 
that I also do in addition to like having a day job and being a mom and that sort of thing. I, I love that attitude because again, another theme we're talking about is just getting over the preciousness of it. And yet at the same time, owning that desire, I still really want this. And so I'm willing to work for it. And you've done an amazing job since the book came out being really consistent about talking about the book, talking about the, the publishing behind it, talking about everything we're talking about today. Have, have you gotten bored with that yet? <laughs> Thankfully, you can talk about Poe forever. I'm still <laughs> finding out strange facts about his life and legacy. Like what? Like what? Oh, so for instance, like when Baltimore media, like I get a lot of interviews about which was the bar in Baltimore that he was drinking at right before he died. Well, he wasn't drinking in any bar right before he died, but many bars claim this in Baltimore, mm -hmm. apparently. Also, he's apparently a huge figure in Romanian literature. He made a cameo on Gumby. There was a 90210 episode named for The Pit and the Pendulum. Little factoids that have just continued to come at me and that are utterly delightful. It's a good thing that when you like your book topic because you have to spend so much time with it and I'm like yeah. giving lectures on Poe and that sort of thing. There's just a, an endlessness to the material, which I really love. And then with publishing, wow, I can talk about that all day long too. How the sausage gets made. I always want to hear it from other people. I always, maybe I'm like over share on the point just because I know how many wrong impressions I had about the business before I found myself in it. And I wouldn't want anyone to place their bets wrong to the extent that's anything anybody else can influence, you know? Yeah. Do you have a favorite program in the book? I think embrace the, the, so the very first Poe tip in the book, which is unnumbered because it's too fundamental to even be labeled number one, is stop looking for models of perfect living. Embrace a brilliant visionary of terrible decisions <laughs> because that is, can be so useful. Poe accomplished so much despite or even because of his flaws and mistakes and missteps and feuds and drunkenness. Maybe our own bad habits or bad proclivities are ways that we can open up our own path and achieve some of our goals too. But also that's a ticket out of self-loathing, I will say. I'm a person who tends to obsess about the things I've done wrong. Like I will stop in my tracks and cringe because of some stupid thing I said three years ago. <laughs> That probably, hopefully no one else remembers. So anyway, I think there's an element of self-forgiveness to that too. When you change your models to someone who maybe you think of as negative, but isn't necessarily. I got that very much from the book over and over again, that sense of permission to be more self-accepting and let yourself off the hook without becoming an ass. Yeah, I definitely don't want to endorse bad behavior <laughs> for its own sake in any extent. No, not that I hate cruelty as much as anybody else. Oh. But uh, we often hold ourselves to a high standard that ends up becoming excruciating. You also wrote recently about elevated trolling. Do you want to tell us what that is? It was a perfect article to encapsulate the tone of the book. And I started it. I'm like, oh my God, what is she telling people to do? This is terrible. And then I'm like, oh, I get it. Good idea. Trolling and trolls are not a practice or people that we tend to. But I think if you understand Poe's literary criticism career, can be understood as a form of trolling. The reason he was such a vitriolic critic was because he was trying to attract attention for himself. And that was a wildly successful move. In a sense, the 1830s, 1840s magazine market was functioning just like the modern day internet. 
in which people say negative things in order to provoke a reaction. Now, granted, I'm not smiling at that behavior. It can be very awful. And I certainly don't want to be told myself, but it does make you realize that how human sort of attention systems work and how you can, if you develop your own critical sensibility, there's nothing wrong with making sort of harsh judgments if you know the field and you really know what you're talking about. I don't mean that folks should be mean, but to be incisive is very valuable. So there's a lot that we can learn from post career in the sense of like how he became famous himself was practicing just that sort of, well, at his best, incisive criticism, at his worst, mere trolling. Mm-hmm. That's like- kind of reassuring to realize that it's always going on. This is not new. I, I want to go back for a second for that you have a full-time job because I can imagine people are going, how does she work full-time, have a young child and do all of this? We'll write the book and now talk about the book, write a lot of articles about the book. Do you sleep? I do. Less than I should. A lot of this happens early mornings and late nights. Like for instance, today I was up around five and my baby didn't get up until about 8.30. So I I had to go wake him up. That's not typical, but I try to seize on it when it does happen. To be honest, I often get the question about like work-life balance and so I'm a workaholic. It's, this makes me tick. I try not to take away time from my family. Our dinner time and hours of the early evening, that's ours. And I'm not going to go off and work during that period. Though I will say when I, in the weeks after the book's launch, like I often didn't have a whole lot of choice about that when I had some really tough deadlines. Yeah, it's just, it's a full on day and I often feel exhausted, but it's how it has to happen because I can't make a living from the writing. I'm not going to give up the writing. And I also don't want to give up having a family life either, but I will say my social life has definitely suffered. I haven't seen friends in a couple of months now, which I'm not super happy about, but something that had to follow by the wayside as you're doing these other things. Thankfully, life is not always this full on with um, promoting the book. I will say (laughs) one of the ways that this whole book happened, like how it got written on top of a full-time job is um, my deadline got moved by two months. It got moved up. Like it was due in December, then it got moved to October and I was having the baby in late July. (laughs) Oh, so thankfully my company has a very generous by American standards, attorney leave policy. So I had four months of paid leave and that's when I wrote the book. The baby would wake up in the middle of the night and I would just, until my husband took the baby in the morning and I would just write through it and the baby would wake up every hour like they do. And so I would feed him and put him back down and keep writing. And I was able to meet the deadline that way, but it was really just a kind of weird confluence of circumstances. I thought I had it tough when I had to finish a book after I gave birth. Like I had to write the last two or three chapters. (laughs) I thought that was hard. That's harder. (laughs) My brother read the last two sections of the book and he's like, I think you're starting to get really wild with the ideas here. And I was like, it's because I'm up in the middle of the night. I haven't slept. The baby's crying. (laughs) I've got a deadline. So do you going to write another book? I really hope to. I'm starting to work on it now. We'll see. Just because the first one was saleable, who knows if you're going to sell the second one. People, that's another misimpression. It's not necessarily the case that it's easy to sell the second one. Even if the first one, like the whole book is selling pretty well, but that doesn't necessarily mean that I'm going to be able to sell a second one because 
it has to be a, an idea that a publisher finds saleable. It can't just be something that pleases me at this point. So and that's true, especially since I never thought about that, but pivoting off post platform, say that three times really quickly, then unless you write something that pivots off someone else's platform or that can somehow build on the, your expanded platform, you're back to the beginning. Yeah. And I've been shocked to hear, I have friends who are much more successful writers who also, I'm like, you still have to write a book proposal? You still have to shop this to multiple publishers? And they say, yes, that, that's still how it happens, even at their level. When this is, some of these people have hit bestseller lists, some have written acclaimed books, which in a way is reassuring because you think it's just you who's up against it, but really it's almost everyone. Yeah. So I'd like to ask this last question of all my guests. What do you want to learn next? I want to learn how to make a home. Like I, I was telling you, we bought this new house and our last place was like very much just a do for the time. I just want to figure out not just how to decorate the rooms at all, but how to rearrange life so that there's like the warmth inside the house that you can sense. There's the happy family life. There's the like love and daily acts, if that sounds too <laughs> cheesy. No, it sounds and it doesn't have to be. I want cookies coming out of the oven. I want a happy child and for my husband and I to be happy and healthy and so on. So I'd like to figure out how to get better at those things, which I've never really given concentrated attention to before, but, and that feels very challenging. Like, how does that happen? I don't know. Yeah. I think we all have strengths, right? Like my strength, I think maybe like your strength is working. And I noticed my child who is 27 is also very good at working <laughs> and not so good at playing and not so good at, she's really good at her relationships, but I saw that. I just think that's what I modeled for you. The working mom. I didn't model mm -hmm. the, the cookie mom. So I think it's challenging because it's not our strengths, but it's also calling to you when you have to listen to that. I will say that working moms weren't modeled for me and finding it was like my first big journey of my adult life. And that was very important to me, like, because I don't know, maybe you found this too, but in some sense, like if you don't have your own work, then how do you find your place in the world? How do you make a place for yourself in the world? So those things are not divorced from each other at all in my experience. No, no. I have seen this so many times with women that I've worked with where they didn't do that for whatever reason. They did, they, maybe they had kids young or they had different things happen and they didn't make that work self. And it mm -hmm. haunts them for their whole lives, that sense of agency. And I think I did it so strongly because my mom didn't get to. I wonder if you can have both. I want to see <laughs> uh, in my own life if it's possible to do both. I didn't feel this drive as strongly as I did before. I think it's emerged because I've started to be happy with my work life. But what is both? Having both? It's some kind of, some kind of, like you said, work-life balance. Blech, let's just throw all that out. Like you'll make it your way. And yeah. maybe it'll be, maybe it'll be challenging at first, but I think we have to throw out all of those ideas that have been foisted on us of what it means. Oh, Catherine, it's been fantastic to speak to you. I've learned so much from reading your Substack and reading the articles that you're putting out there. And it's really helping me think about my own platform and think about how to help writers. So I'm really grateful for you taking the time to talk to us and doing all that work in the world. Thank you so much. I've been listening to the podcast and I geeked out at the Oliver Berkman and I'm really loving it. So thank you for having me on. It's such a pleasure. I think it was so refreshing how much gratitude Catherine has for the process that this book went through. That was a real takeaway for me. And thinking about borrowing other people's platform, that's turning and turning in my head. I don't know what that would look like. 
What about you? What were your takeaways? How are you going to remember them? Who are you going to share them with? And can you share this episode? If you haven't done it yet, it's just such an incredible way to say, I like this podcast and help us grow our audience. Next week, I have the profound pleasure of sharing with you Ruth Ozeki. She is one of my favorite novelists, and after this conversation I have with her, one of my favorite humans. You're going to find it so helpful and so nourishing. She is a best-selling author. Her newest book is The Book of Form and Emptiness, and she is a Zen priest. She's been a documentary and um, commercial filmmaker. She's done a lot of different creative disciplines, so we're not just going to talk about writing for those of you who are like, Jen, you keep having writers on. We always try to talk about lots of different things for creative disciplines and lots of ways to bring those ideas across to different mediums, and this one is an incredibly rich conversation about process, so I am so delighted to get to share that with you next week, and in the meantime, I hope you will create out loud.